As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, As always, I'm Tim Watt and I'm joined by my dad, John Watt. Hi, Dad. Hi, it's good to be here. And we're really pleased to welcome a guest onto the show this week. That's Dr. Daniel Morn. Hi, Daniel. Hi. Uh, We're really excited to have you on the show to talk a little bit about uh, mental health, that vast topic. Um, You're a psychiatrist working in the NHS here in the UK. Do you want to kind of explain a little bit about more about what that means and and what what, what does your work look like? What does a normal day look like for you? Yeah, so a psychiatrist um, is a medic of the mind. We are trained as physical health doctors. There are so many terms that begin with psych there's psychologists Mm. psychotherapists a psychiatrist is the medical doctor as opposed to psychologists or psychotherapists who might deliver talking therapy my job is to meet people who might have mental health problems really get a good understanding of what those difficulties are and come to a diagnosis something like a depressive episode or schizophrenia bipolar obsessive compulsive disorder so to arrive at a diagnosis and then to move forward to consider treatment plans and the main two types of treatment plans we have are you know ones that include medication and ones that include talking therapy but there's all the holistic sides of things that we we talk to uh with patients which which include anything from sorting out their money to housing and various other things that the patient might need. So my day looks, well, it's very varied. What can I say? Do you want to know about my clinics and and, and how often I see patients? Or would you like to know, um, you know, what's, what's, uh, what kind of people I see? Yeah. I mean, what kind of people do you see? What kind of people turn up in the, in the office of a consultant psychiatrist? Well, um, the, la- the largest number of people who uh, the largest number of conditions are depressive and anxious conditions, but most of them are managed in primary care. Our psychiatrists tend to see the really severe depressive episodes or the really severe anxiety de- episodes, the ones where they're unable to leave their room, is causing massive problems in functioning, or and, we, and severe uh, obsessive compulsive conditions. But a large mainstay, maybe maybe around 50% of, of presentations are maybe schizophrenia and bipolar. These are the kind of mainstay of psychiatrists because these are the major mental illnesses that have long-term 
significant disability associated with it a lot of the time. I actually work in a psychosis service. So I really, I'm the specialist uh, psychiatrist for Oxfordshire uh, dealing with psychosis. And could you explain a bit more what psychosis is? Um, you know, I, I think most people have got a sort of vague idea, but, but uh, what, how would you describe it? The common perception of, of psychosis, and it's not helped by the name, it means split mind or detached from reality. And, 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 and well, schizophrenia means split mind. So lots of people think that it's a Jekyll and Hyde type of picture. It's, it's not really. Uh, what, what psychosis means is that you, you can believe things or experience things which aren't real. So believing things which aren't real might be you're being followed or there's people out to get you or uh, maybe, you know, you've got a, a belief that um, maybe the aliens have landed or, you know, something like that, which is really bizarre. But the experiencing things which aren't real might be something like voices. So I'm hearing a voice. I think my neighbours are speaking about me. So delusions and hallucinations are what we call them technically and you're a christian as well as a doctor do you feel like your your christianity your faith plays much of a role in either how you got to this place or how you do your job as a as a psychiatrist so um jesus talks about um having a heart for the poor didn't he and and i think that one of the things about working as a psychiatrist is 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 that i really meet those people who are having a really difficult time in their lives and it is, I say, a great privilege to have access and opportunity to these people who are really struggling to show them that they are valued, to show them that I respect them, to show them that I care for them in a deep and meaningful way. And I like to think that that is how I show Jesus's love to them. I think we have to be really careful about a power dynamic um, in, in mental health, because here are people who often are struggling to have um, a sense of reality, uh, struggling with existential um, questions a lot of the time. And I, I very much see my role as a diagnostician and a caring, supporting doctor. And I'm careful actually about how much I uh, talk about myself in any way, whether about faith or personally. Uh, Freud talks about you know, the importance of being a blank wall uh, so that you can, the patients can bounce off you more easily. And there's a lot to be said about that. So I do try to keep myself a bit more private for good reason, therapeutically, and to be careful of the power dynamic. I have a special interest in this, uh, not just because, you know, interested in medicine and ethics, but also from my personal uh, experience of being a psychiatric inpatient and uh, being on the receiving end of... Um, of psychiatric care and certainly um you know from the patient's point of view you know what you said rings a lot of bells that there is this huge power dynamic you feel as a patient incredibly vulnerable powerless um and and utterly dependent on how you are being treated uh, but positively you know i am so grateful for the skilled, compassionate, uh, thoughtful input I received from from psychiatrists who who genuinely cared for me and who, uh, you know, so I can absolutely see what a wonderful privilege it is to be 
to be in that position as as well as at times it must be incredibly difficult it's funny it it is difficult um because you you have access to to really painful stories and but i i do think there is an ability to really empathize and understand without necessarily getting emotionally involved and actually there's a lot to be said for you don't want your psychiatrist weeping with you <laughs> you you want your psychiatrist to be caring but professional understanding but not directly emotionally affected so i think there's there's a lot to be said for um reaching in and understanding the difficulty but not you know feeling it like you know you would if you were a relative or a good friend for example and that is something that you do have to learn and i do remember my first some of my first patients perhaps i hadn't developed that professional demeanor and i really did get very much involved emotionally it really was a new thing for me so i remember those very vividly but you know you you cannot continue like like that otherwise yes you know your resilience would be very poor indeed yeah no i and, and it is interesting isn't it because i've wrestled with exactly the same kind of issues as a christian pediatrician you know on the one hand wanting to to empathize and and to weep with those who weep and yet at the same time as you say you need to retain some kind of professional uh, boundary uh, precisely so that you can be trusted and 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 leaned upon uh by by the patients and so on so so it's it's a fascinating challenge i think to because the opposite is also quite damaging isn't it when people are just totally cold and professional uh it can come across as 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 hurtful that people don't really care that's that's right I, I think there's a lot to be said for trying to find new ways of expressing people's difficulty that they haven't managed to access before that can help reshape their understanding of a problem. Sometimes that means putting it into a diagnosis. Sometimes that might mean understanding it in a non-judgmental way or a way that allows them to see a way through the problem. And that can often be a really therapeutic caring thing to do um for example you know talking about a problem like a, a, a journey and often it might mean saying to them i can see hope here you might not see hope but i know i've managed people through this and let me hold your hope for you of course i do work with people who are i section as well and take into hospital against their will and and that carries another whole dynamic of of, of a relationship uh, but actually, a, a largely, most of the time, there is a, a sense that we can reconnect after that period of illness and they can see that that really was necessary at the, at the time. And I did have their best interests at heart. That happens the vast majority of the time. One of the narratives we hear quite a lot around mental health care services is that that they're incredibly overstretched, underfunded, the waiting lists are incredibly long and and that's been putting under even greater pressure in recent years since the COVID pandemic. Is that is that your experience, Daniel? Absolutely. Psychosis rates have gone up. Uh, child and adolescent presentations uh, across the board have gone up. Uh, we're seeing that in, in adult services too. So yeah, absolutely. There's a sense uh, that the COVID pandemic has sort of accelerated this sense of 
um, sort of disconnect uh, in communities and the sense of um, engaging with a virtual world almost exclusively sometimes with some people. And we know with mental health, it's so important. We are we are relational creatures and it's so important to relate to other people, to be known and understood and, and uh, by others and and to be uh, in relationships. So this sense of the COVID pandemic has shut doors. It has closed people off to the outside world um, and it's increased anxiety generally particularly cases like anxiety and agoraphobia particular cases that are have been triggered uh, by by the covid pandemic goodness me there was a lot to be anxious about in covid wasn't there and it has been a, a real trigger for some people do you think this is going to be a kind of a blip and if when we kind of zoom out in a kind of 10 20 year timeline things will return to normal whatever normal was or do you think this is going to kind of be a long longer lasting shift in in kind of society-wide epidemiology around mental health? There's really good evidence that some conditions are pretty stable uh, across populations and across time. So schizophrenia and bipolar are pretty stable. Um, The more genetic conditions these are, um, and and so that would make sense, wouldn't it? But you look at depression, anxiety, these are the ones that have really risen. And I think the if you look at uh, our society, what COVID has done, and I think it, we w- are becoming more disconnected. We're, we're existing more in virtual realms. And I think I, I, I struggle to see that going away anytime soon. So for that reason, you know, I, I do think we, we, we might not see the same acceleration, but I don't think we're going to see a, an ebbing of, uh, of, of, of referral rates. to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. And what's your perspective about uh, social media? I mean, it's a topic we've talked about on previous podcasts. And um, but as a psychiatrist, I'd be really interested. Is it just the I mean, the argument, of course, goes that we can have really meaningful relationships using the Internet, using um all the different tools that are there you know why do we need to be meeting people face to face in a physical world and uh so, so what's your take on it as a psychiatrist i think it's damaging i think it's damaging because we are forcing young people um to be available to the external world um 24 7. young people are engaging with with potential bullies and uh, uh you know at 2 a.m 3 a.m at night they are um being forced and it, you know to project themselves in uh, as an identity that apparently it should be fully formed they they need to know what they're into what they're against you know teenagers often you know are trying to find who they are and social media puts that pressure to say you know tell us tell us now and it's a kind of um, realm where it's very easy to be torn down. It's so easy to put a jibe in. It's so easy to be negative and to um, dis, you know, not like somebody or dis- and unfriend somebody, whatever the terms are. And so it's quite a, 
a brutal place. And I certainly see in my practice that there are so many casualties of social media, not only because they of, of just the sheer amount of time that they're open and 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 tuned into this world, which I think is unhelpful, but also because of the trauma of 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 having been bullied, you know, social media bullying. There's also one thing that I, I, I've written about, and, and when I see psychosis and bipolar, when they might be psychotic, they might be putting all sorts of stuff on social media that doesn't make sense, you know, saying about the MI5 following them or, or talking in a, a perhaps disinhibited way. And that's really damaging as well. Um, and, and I've actually known somebody who had to actually unfriend, you know, create a whole new social media account and leave and to move to a new city because of the problems that happen through the social media account when they're unwell. That's devastating. I would say generally it's damaging. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? It's, it's often said that, you know, everybody else forgets, but Google never forgets. You know, it's it's always there. And and I can totally see that. I've never thought of that before, but it makes complete sense that if, you know, if I was losing the plot and then putting out this whole lot of stuff out there for everybody to see, you, you can completely wreck any kind of relationships and trust and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And it's really hard to repair as well. It's not as if you can just go and see everyone, you know, you might have hundreds of friends, what do you do? And then everything becomes, you know, what do, do you make a big thing of it and fess up and say, I've got this problem? Well, that's a bit unfair on that person, isn't it? Um, so yeah, we, we, we often, oh, well, I take a digital history off my patients now. I do. I like it. I, 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 a digital yeah, history. Yeah, I do. I, um, so so, you know, what do you do on the Internet? What sites do you go to? Because let's not forget, you know, gambling is a massive thing, as was porn and, you know, uh, gaming as well. These massive multiplayer games, they are so addictive and they are, I think, robbing people of the ability to form communications. One of the things I say uh, about texting is that texting is kind of it, it, it kind of it, it slowly erodes the wonderful thing about face-to-face -face communications. And I think gaming is one step further away. And there's something that's very special, that's very spiritual about meeting another person in the flesh that's meaningful, where you present all of you to be accepted. Okay, yes, it can be scary at times, but actually there's something healing there too. And, and, and good for our mental well-being that we are, we're just losing the sheer amount of time we're spending on the internet. Is there a case for kind of preemptively winding down your online presence, even if you haven't actually experienced any mental health problems? It's not just to, for those who are having psych, experiencing psychosis, but actually for, for the rest of us, is there a, a case that we need to be kind of better yeah, I think managing Tim's getting our digital worried, world? He's, he's clearly getting worried about this, you know. He needs a psychiatrist. Speaking, speaking as, a, as a Twitter addict. <laughs> um, in, it depends at what cost. Are you getting those meaningful relationships? Are you having good conversations? Are you developing relationships in in vivo, in, re, in the real world? Are you um, ensuring that you are uh, caring for people as well as being cared for in the real world? If that's the case, then that's fine. But if it's coming at a cost, then I'd really look at that hard. Um, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. One of the other things I was really keen to ask you for your take on is 
I've been seeing some recent kind of research and, and news coverage around uh, the question of medication in, in mental health world, which is often the kind of contentious question uh, among 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 the kind of different treatment plans is going down the kind of meditation route. And there was a fascinating piece I read in The Economist recently, which was kind of rounding up some of the recent research around antidepressants and and kind of suggesting that actually in in many ways the kind of if you look at studies in the whole there's there's good evidence that actually they're they're little better than placebo for some kind of more minor conditions are, are you kind of have you been following that debate do you have a perspective how, how much do you prescribe antidepressants for kind of more minor conditions the minor conditions don't get to psychiatrists they're managed by the gp we deal with severe cases that you know so I'm not blaming my GP colleagues. I think they do an absolutely fantastic job in very difficult circumstances, but they're the ones who see the mild cases and often they don't have other alternative um, options other than the medication. We do have social prescribing now, which I really do support. But look, antidepressants work. Ain't no doubt about it. If you look at the numbers needed to treat compared to other medications like blood pressure pills and things like that, we are up there being you know, not far off effectiveness levels of antibiotics and other very reliable medications they work no doubt about it but you look at mild depression and there's a question whether this is an illness the mild depression is it an illness or is it a sort of uh, a period of sadness where people are struggling certainly moderate and severe um depressive episodes are respond very well to antidepressants mild cases of depression anxiety don't respond and actually the evidence is says you don't use antidepressants in mild cases. What you should use is behavioral activation. What that means is doing more, seeing more people, exercising, getting your sleep in order, cutting down alcohol, these sorts of things. So for mild cases, no, they don't work. And we've got to be careful here because there is both overtreatment and undertreatment. These are not mutually exclusive things. Overtreatment happens and undertreatment happens. So when I talk about this, I say there are people out there who should be on antidepressants, who aren't, and they are maybe the moderate severe end. There are other people who have gone to their GP with a mild depression, who perhaps you know, they've tried an antidepressant, it hasn't really been that effective, and they could have tried something else as well. It's not necessarily wrong, but sometimes if somebody's a bit depressed, the GP's been a qu bit quick to the, the medication, they haven't found it that effective, it might be that they should just try other things. It's not that antidepressants aren't effective, and certainly, you know, you look at, I mean, they're lifesavers. I, I I think they, I regularly see them saving lives. So I'm, I'm a big fan. Can, do you understand why some people feel wary about um, starting a course of, of medication? Um, I don't know. There's, there's, I feel like there's a, there's a culture in which like either it's an admission of weakness or there's a fear that once you're on them, you'll never get off them. Do you, do you come across that among any of your patients? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of stigma attached to mental health problems. And um, I try to be patient when I come across it because I do get frustrated about the amount of stigma. I say, we mustn't stigmatize these conditions. The brain is an organ like anything else. If the liver doesn't function very well, we should take something to help the liver and we should do the same with the brain. Just because our mind thinks using the brain doesn't make it any more or less, uh, you know, prone to having uh biological problems with it we can get it there's a confusion and a category error there i think that um 
we can help ourselves with things like depression, but goodness me, we can help ourselves with things like diabetes and things like liver conditions. You know, a diabetic can exercise more and lose weight um, and have a healthier diet and improve their diabetes. Doesn't mean they should stop having the diabetes meds, though, does it? Maybe there's a case for those, particularly in maybe church leaders and stuff, to be a bit more open about kind of, you know, wearing their own mental health conditions on their sleeves so that it, it helps destigmatize it, certainly in Christian communities, that if you see that your vicar or your pastor is is casually dropping into conversation or in a sermon when they saw their psychiatrist or, or when they, you know, picked up their medication, does that does that help? That is that is that a bit of a naive approach? Is, is that more complicated than that? Oh, no, I think the more... Um vulnerability we have in the pulpit the better and the more um i mean look what stephen fry did in the uk with bipolar disorder he was really honest about his struggles there and then actually we had a whole wave of people saying i've got bipolar i've got bipolar well, actually not not all of them did but uh, actually it was great because suddenly the stigmatized problem became something that people wore as a bit of a badge of honor because they were likened to the the struggles that that stephen fry had and so I think there's a lot to be said for destigmatizing mental illness still. I would say that we've got to be careful about how we destigmatize mental health problems as well, because in our quest to destigmatize, we've come a long way. But in doing so, we've overegged the medical model. And, and what we've done is we've said it's all illness. And I think we've disempowered people in doing that. So we've got to keep the narrative up that people have responsibility. They shouldn't be blaming themselves. But there's this sense that just because it's, you know, we need to be careful about how we talk about it. So it's not that every vicar should just fess up because sometimes that can be damaging. We need to be nuanced about our message. Yeah, there is this very strong tendency, isn't it, in the modern world to over-medicalise things. You know, death and dying has been become very medicalised. And, and I think mental health is another area isn't it so whenever i'm having any kind of struggle or finding life difficult i say oh i've got this mental health issue um at the moment and, and i need treatment what's your response to that i think it's absolutely i think you're right john i think um we do over pathologize and you know nobody's sad anymore they're always depressed mm. I mean, we have we anxiousness is a anxiety is a normal term we use, but they're just anxiety disorders. The the thing that I talk about, which is quite quite uh, interesting to think, is doctors generally have used Greek terms for conditions. So you look at the the term rosacea. Rosacea just means red face, but the patient goes to the doctor and says, "I've got a red face," and the GP goes, or the doctor says, "You've got rosacea." But what? And what the GP has done is they've diagnosed a specific type of red face. The problem we've got in mental health is they go, the patient comes on and goes, I've got depression. And the doctor says, oh, maybe you've got depression then. So it's confused because um, there's no sense of difference between the, the common parlance of emotional variability and a, a medical illness. And I think from that comes a lot of problems in both people feeling um, confused about what it, depression actually means, which is a much wider syndrome than just sadness, interestingly. But it, it, it can also do discredit to the people who are actually fully clinically severely depressed, thinking, well, maybe I'm just the same as these other guys. I'm just not coping quite as well. 
no, you've got a really serious condition that's really you know, severe and needs medical treatment. And it's not the same as these other people. Hmm. That's really interesting. And maybe if we were more, more medically literate, we would be able to differentiate between I have anxiety and I have generalized anxiety disorder, which is, you know, in the DSM and has a list of criteria and is they might have the same word in them, but they're as you're saying, they're actually quite different. They experience very differently. And the way to go about thinking about this is, you know, have you done everything you can to try and help yourself? You know, have you cut down alcohol? Have you got your sleeping in order or can't you get your sleep in order? You know, are you using all of these self-help techniques that, that we know of, you know, uh, are we talking about our problems? And if none of that is working and you're still really struggling to function in a reasonable way, then that's the time to look for help because uh, you've, you've sort of looked through all your strategies. So the GP shouldn't necessarily be the last, but it certainly shouldn't be the first port of call to, to look for help. And my concern is probably that we're reaching for it first when actually there's a lot of uh, I think primary care, we talk about primary care being GPs. Primary care should be us helping ourselves. Hmm. Secondary care should be our friends and family helping us. And then perhaps GPs are tertiary care. I don't know. Yeah, it's really interesting. I wonder whether there is, there's a role for the church in in kind of pushing back on that overcorrection and, and that tendency we have as a society to to kind of overdiagnose, overmedicalize. Um, that's something I'd love to hear Daniel's take on uh next week in our when we kind of resume our conversation on on mental health in the church uh so um do do follow us um come back for that but we've run out of time for today so I'll have to draw it to a close um thanks for listening everyone thanks for for being here um as always you can find some more uh stuff to read and stimulate your own thinking on John's website that's um johnwyatt.com you can get in touch with us by emailing uh, molad m-o-l-a-d at premier.org.uk Uh, But do join us next week. We're going to be picking up again with Daniel Morn talking about mental health. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.